people are watching Kawhi because they want to and it's obsessive and that's fucked up i think that the industry makes them want to yeah and you wouldn't necessarily disagree with me on that no not at all okay then this episode might be very short (laughs) (laughs) that's that's what i was wondering that's all i had you're listening to what's that noise the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Here's your hosts, Tommy and Derek. So one of the things that bugged me about doing that that talk with you is the fact that I didn't bring up culture industry, primarily because I have a really, really hard time taking the privacy of a celebrity seriously. You know, my Why int- is that, though? My intellectual training makes me more interested in grassroots, bottom-up, lower-class, being fucked over kind of things, not privileged society. And, you know, when you go to a neo-Marxist institution like York, mm-hmm. we're not very sympathetic to celebrities. But why? This was, like, the, the, the heart of our debate. Yeah. It's okay to be sympathetic to people like this because mm-hmm. they do have meaningful lives yeah. and their, their celebrities constructed for them without a lot of their control. To be clear... The issue going in was this tension where I was like, I don't want to be sympathetic to a fucking all-star celebrity athlete. Yeah. They make millions of dollars. Fuck them. Yeah. By the time we finished, I was like, he is a human. And this guy has been heavily, heavily scrutinized. And it doesn't matter who you are. You're still mm-hmm. a pawn mm-hmm. in a bigger, bigger game. And so that that was the big issue. But still, somewhere along the way, I was taking issue with this idea that people somehow just watched Kawhi and they engaged in surveillance because they were self-interested, that people just love sports. Mm -hmm. As you said in the episode, Mm -hmm. right? For example, sports brings people together and it's the major distraction of our times. Yeah. But how, what is the basis upon which that's made? Yeah. That is media engineering the conditions through which society becomes interested in something. And that's the premise of culture industry. Yeah, well, I, again, I, think I don't I brought... think like people just like sports because they like it. Yeah, like, the well, interest okay. has to be maybe crafted. that was I. I didn't necessarily mean just there. You know, people are born inherently and they just like like sports. I think we're all a product of the system through which we're generated, which is society, right? But like the paradox that we talked about last week was whether or not media is determining that for us or whether it's part of us and our creating media like this has never been settled for me no i don't think we can settle this question of is media feeding us or are we feeding media i think it's a little bit of both that's the problem that we need to deal with yeah and i think we can do that beyond just Kawhi. like it's not just about Kawhi, but i think like your your approach to like celebrity in general I think this is an interesting question that takes it beyond just talking about sports or just talking about Kawhi. But right. like, why do we, why do critical scholars for the most part try to or tend to avoid discussions when it's with, with privileged people or with people who have money? Right. Like money cannot be the only thing that determines like power in society. For sure. It's important to keep in mind the difference in scale, right? So someone like Kawhi makes a lot of money, yeah. but <laughs> against the people who own the NBA, of course, yeah, and the and companies MLSC, like Disney, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, owns the Raptors, and they're making way more money than Kawhi. So the scale is, is important. Yeah, to be completely frank and honest with you, I I had a a bit of an eye opening experience talking to uh, an old buddy of mine that I went to high school with. His name's Mark Mathot. He 
was a defenseman in the NHL for a very long time. People will know that he played for the Senators and finished his career, it looks like, in, in Dallas. Um, back in the year of the lockout, I remember posting on Facebook that I thought the players were being really selfish. <laughs> and guess who messaged? Me? Yeah, of course he Mark did. took exception to that, and yeah. he was absolutely right to do so. Yeah. And what he reminded me is not just the fact that we're old buddies from high school. We used to sit next to each other in a grade 11 geography class and not do any geography. Is uh, <laughs> a fact that most people who have to spend their entire lives getting to the position of becoming a professional athlete, that's all they do. Mm-hmm. right if they can't compete in their sport they're never going to make money mm-hmm. because they forego a lot of their education mm-hmm. most of these athletes will never ever go into a university and study i mean unless you're like ncaa but then you're not really professional right so if you have a short career you're in big trouble mm-hmm. right if you only play in the nhl for four years even if you make five million a year if you make two million a year if you make the salary minimum, what is it, 800000 yeah, 750 or 800000 American a year. That's not going to carry you through your entire life. No. It's not going to pay agent fees out of that as well and pay for a variety of things out of that as well. Yeah. So this is why, like when, when you and I were texting back and forward mm-hmm. as a follow-up to the Kawhi show, thinking back to uh, this talk I had with Mark as well, this is why I've sort of changed my tune. Mm-hmm. But... Going to a school like York, we are, as you say, trained as critical thinkers that are predisposed to not being sympathetic to anybody with money. And this is this kind of like old Marxist tension transformed into a neo-Marxist thing, which brings us to the problem of media and digitization. So I'm really excited to see what we can piece apart. I can be sympathetic to people like Kawhi. Yeah. Although I do think he makes a hell of a lot more money than the bottom theaters in the NBA. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And he's he could yeah. retire now and be fine for the rest of his life and yeah. then some. Yeah. Is there a line for you before we get into talking about mm. do we feed media or does media feed us? Mm-hmm. Is there a line for you? Like, do you is there a certain scale of celebrity where you just stop being sympathetic? No, not a scale of celebrity. Um, to me, it would be my approach to like power. My approach to like beyond just money. And beyond just celebrity, it's like influence and how you how you can control other people around you, for instance. So like someone like Jeff Bezos, that would be someone that I wouldn't give a shit about. Like, I don't really care. I don't care about the Waltons. I don't care about like the Westons in Canada. Don't care about Tim Cook or Steve Jobs and what they've sort of because they have this this thing that goes beyond money. Like they have all of the capital. All of the Borgesian capital, the economic, the symbolic, the the social capital, the cultural, they have all of it. That's when, those are the people I'm not really sympathetic for. And people who can control narratives around what they're doing. It can control the habits of like consumers. I think it would be a hard argument to suggest that like Jeff Bezos doesn't actually control the end user in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard isn't controlling the end user. You might say like, oh, it's influencing the end user to buy maybe New Balance shoes or Nike shoes. But like Jeff Bezos is actually working like behind the scenes to control a variety of things and can control the political realm. And yeah, go ahead. Sorry. You hate Foucault, don't you? No, I I'm like I'm a, I must. I if I were to like you know how last week I kept saying I'm not a Marxist. I'm not a Marxist. I'm actually like my in my work. I'm strictly Foucaultian. 
Or I have been, yes. Because the gov mentality theory in me says there's no driver behind the bus of power. Where power is most dangerous is when it's discreet and coalescing. Like even if Bezos or you can imagine Trump sitting in the Oval Office finally orchestrating everything that's going on to his advantage, which I highly doubt, is a little bit absurd, right? Bezos is not that capable. He's very good at manipulating markets. Yeah, yeah, but, he, but he, he's he's capable of making that discreet, making that application of power very discreet. What about the that's what Amazon does? What about the mechanisms like media mm. about content transfer? Yeah, about information and idea flow yeah. along the way. Yeah, that reify and amplify the kind of powers that might be flowing out of his fancy fucking chair. Yeah, well, I think that like we can explore those, but we can't explore those as if they're the only ones. This is this ominous power. Right. Because media picks up like discourse that isn't powerful. Media picks up what other people say. What is it about specific narratives that emerges as the mainstream sort of media story about any given uh, or about any topic? It depends. It's not always just whoever's powerful gets the say. Yeah, more coverage will go towards Trump or Bezos or whatever. But like media has the ability to adopt a multitude of narratives. The narrative point is really important. Mm-hmm. I'm with you on that one. The The distinction I think we have to make as we continue forward in this exploration of do we feed media or does media feed us is recognizing that media speaks on its own terms too. Yeah. Media is powerful into itself. Yeah. And I don't know that we can just like dissect a single narrative that comes out of one office or one mm-hmm. person's voice or one tweet mm-hmm. without recognizing the ways that it transforms yeah. and, em- and emerges and, and, and transforms into other things along the way. There's something else a little bit more nefarious, a little bit more discreet about, I see you smiling over there too. <laughs> this is my nefarity and my tinfoil hat going on again. That's what you're thinking, isn't it? Well, okay. So it will always come back that sort of, line of thinking always comes back to media controls us which is the neo-marxist impulse coming out of my communication studies background yeah well regard okay so it doesn't have to just be always about your background and about what you learned or about what you read it's about what you think yeah where you think the power lies for instance that's and and i i do think that way yeah so you think that like the media controls the world when we're talking about media i don't mean capital m media followed by capital c corporate media Mm -hmm. i mean lowercase m media or even new media i'm talking about like the content that circulates in a post on facebook that Mm -hmm. is media to me yeah one post is media yeah and that post has a whole bunch of different components weird parts to it that interact and frame and guide and even prevent the way people engage with the world around them yeah you can't walk outside and experience the entire world and expect it to be replicated perfectly when you come back inside and look at your computer. Yeah. And this is like the starting concern when when culture industry was written, right? Mm-hmm. When somebody's sitting down in a movie theater and they're watching a movie and there's sound, the authors of culture industry first argued that sound was the biggest replicant, the biggest simulator of real life. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as you hear sound in a moving picture, you are absorbed into an experience where you feel as though the world around you is being simulated in front of you mm-hmm. you're being given a simulation yeah you're always fed a simulation it can never possibly reflect the entire world so there's always politics yeah and everything is shared online it doesn't matter what people intend or what they're trying to say 
it will be received by the audience and the consumer in a way that is very, very difficult to dissect. Mm -hmm. But what we do know for certain is it will never be a proper reflection of what's outside of that room when someone's standing out in the real world listening and seeing and smelling and tasting. Yeah. So there is power in those posts. And that can't always be figured out or reduced to something as simple as like this narrative versus that narrative. Yeah. I would agree with that completely. But that still doesn't solve this or or it still doesn't persuade me enough to think that like media small m lowercase m media controls how we're thinking and how we're it might influence might influence a lot of people in a variety of ways but like the things we see on facebook or on the internet or on snapchat or 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 twitter or watching on the news they don't control how we think about any given topic they might be a portion of how we're influenced on that but like there's also like your what your parents taught you growing up what your like sort of religious dictates that you that you might sort of abide by um there are a variety of different things that also influence the ways in which we behave so this like this idea and, and students uh, students for me often like say oh the media controls the, the the narratives around terrorism and i'm like no it's like yeah they might influence my response is always yes media in, certainly media influences the ways we think about terrorism absolutely but you know what so does like our opinion and our thought of our country or our um culture our religion and how that is sort of uh, put under threat of some in, in some way so I think it's not enough for me to just be like, okay, media has this sort of monolithic power over us and that we just succumb to it. And I think the celebrity question is a particularly interesting question here. Is like, okay, so like if media controls the ways in which we behave, then like we just assume that media can like, that celebrities, people in the media, figures in in media, in a in a in um, quantitatively more media than other people like you or me that they can just like what they believe is what we're going to believe it's not it's not persuasive for me you're on that by me again it's it's not persuasive that say i love cristiano ronaldo and i fo- i'm one of the 400 million people who follow him on instagram that he posts something and i'm gonna go buy that i do follow cristiano ronaldo on instagram and when he posts something, I most of the time I laugh at it. I'm like, wow, I can't believe you posted that. <laughs> I'm not buying anything. Yeah. No, like you're, you don't have that influence over me. You have influence over me in particular sections, sort of particular areas of my life. But like you don't control what I'm doing. And any like argument that says like media just kind of monolithically controls people, I just don't buy. It's not enough for me. I, I want to explore the ways in which we also contribute to what media feeds us. So a lot has changed since Adorno and Horkheimer yeah. wrote culture industry, yeah. right? And we see a lot of different variants that are produced by a lot of different scholars along the way that deal with with media. And that makes me really wonder if it if we really can frame these kinds of issues in the context of do we feed media or is the media feeding? I, I think, think so. it's fun, yeah. and playful. It's, of course, the dichotomy yeah. is kind of cool. To think well, it, it, it's what we do. We try to reduce complex problems to easy to understand. Most of the time, that happens through a distinction. It does this, and it doesn't do that. It's black it's, or it's white. It's, those kind of distinctions are often pretty useful for securing uh, uh, grants and external funding quite successfully. But of course. You think we all know that when you write in those ways, you're purposely 
<laughs> bypassing certain things. So let's be honest here. We both acknowledge that there's a lot more complexity here, but I still do find something really compelling about the effects of culture industry socially yeah. to the extent that consumers have a disproportionate lack of autonomy against the kinds of decisions and individual expressions that can be made in the face of an overwhelming array of things that are designed to be psychologically manipulative. Mm -hmm. Anyone would be thinking about Cambridge Analytica if they tune into our show regularly right mm -hmm. now. A lot of people will be thinking about discrete algorithms and how they massage and fudge and take you know specific uh, interpretative flexibilities when it comes to uh, designing predictive uh, profiles about who people are going to become, what they're going to buy, where they're heading, and all that sort of stuff. So um, the one thing in, that I'm really interested in is, an, is anathema, mm. the production of dislike. Mm -hmm. You don't see dislike things on social media. You can like something, but you can't, you can't dislike something. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the prevalence of things yeah, yeah, you that, can. that you don't like. Because you can, you can click don't show me this again. That is basically a dislike, that, an indication of dislike. Which is how dislike. we get into the filter bubble. Yeah. That's a really good point. But I, has, I guess what I'm I'm struggling with a little bit is what happens when people do uh, refine their ability to only see things that they like. Yeah. Because it still is dependent upon the ability for all sorts of different kinds of perspectives to circulate. Yeah. And we've run into a serious social issue right now. Yeah. Where people are only being fed the things that they want to see. Yeah, echo There's chambers. Very, yeah, yeah, they're getting into these echo filter, chambers filter where, bubbles, where they only chambers, see yeah. the, the people who, or they only see communications that are aligned with what they've typically liked or what they've typically shared themselves. Which, as a precondition, requires yeah. the prevalence of things that people don't want to see. Yeah. So anathema is still a very, very important part yeah. of uh, social evolution, social interaction. And as a premise of culture industry. Yeah. One of my issues with this sort of understanding when we talk about echo chambers and we talk about like people sort of liking the same thing over and over and then like being reinforced by just receiving that same information is I think people overestimate the role of technology in that. I think people are overestimating and trying to place blame in the algorithm. And I'm, I'm using like quotes in the air here or like Facebook is controlling this or like, look, Cambridge Analytica came out. The technology is determining what people think. Like, I don't think that's the case. I think there is individual human agency that we're ignoring here. So when we want to say like, oh, people voted for Trump because of like a Facebook algorithm. No, people voted for Trump because they wanted to vote for Trump. They had an individual idea and an individual like acceptance of what he was doing. Whether or not that means like you believe those same things Trump does, I don't know. But you can't just blame it on Facebook. Providing you're, you're willing to fully acknowledge that less than half of the country actually voted. Yeah, of course. So we're not talking about significant numbers. We're talking about less than a quarter, right? Isn't yeah. that the turnout? Less than a quarter of Americans actually voted in that uh, thing? No, I think it was... No, no, more than that. A third? No, more than that. I think it was around 60%, wasn't it? Let's see. 2016 federal election um, turnout. We can find that. Oh, no, that's Canadian. Don't click on a partisan crap thing. 65. Um, but increase... Oh, no, this is... But many. decreased... 
to 59. I don't know. This is kind of confusing. I want an overarching number. Voting 61.4 in 2016. 60%. Roughly 60%. So 61% of the population showed up. Yeah. And how many of those people voted for Trump? Oh, more than half. A little bit more than half. He got... Or no, did Hillary Clinton got the popular vote, actually. So, so this is what I'm talking A little about. less than half. So just over half of the country shows up. Yeah. A little over half of those people voted for Hillary. Yeah. The rest voted for Trump. Yeah. And then there's this huge swath of people that didn't even show up. Yeah. So yeah, you know, the, the algorithm thing did not determine the, the election, but it still had a significant... Yeah, impact. And, and things might. I'm never. I'm not suggesting that technology does or media doesn't influence us. Never. That we're will understating never come the question of, of human agency. Yes. So when we start to say like, oh, so the emergence of this like right wing extremist racist sort of group, all right, call it whatever you want. Like the emergence of this is like due to Facebook uh, and Twitter echo chambers. It's like no, people are racist. <laughs> people are racist <laughs> there's a large portion of north americans who are racist who are do not want people of other cultures participating in their democracy in canada in the u.s we they exist right now they're more amplified okay and we can't by focusing on the technology i think we downplay how racist people are i think we downplay how bigoted how misogynist, how sexist people are. Can media not be measured to determine the levels of predisposition towards racism from the, the perspective of the human out? I don't know. I think... It's a I lot don't of know. data and a lot yeah, of metrics like, I and stuff know. can be really misleading. There's a, this new book out. It's called Measuring Culture. You might be interested in it. I haven't read it myself or it's coming out soon. Chris Bale. Um, it, it's based on John Moore's... Like he's a... Uh, a social network guy um uh, and it's like it's got a bunch of different authors on it that are all contributing to this idea that we can measure culture or how we can measure culture i haven't read it so i can't really talk too much about that but maybe this is a first kind of step or a first intervention to, to help us understand how we can do that because that's a really hard question to for sure explore empirically right yeah it's sure. almost impossible yeah but yet we we tend we think that we can like test the other way we can we think we can easily and i've done this myself in my own work i've looked at how media influences people and i suggest that media does have an influence on people so the other way we we love to explore that sort of neo-marxist um like media controls culture industry whatever you want to call it that controls the narrative in a variety of ways and people are influenced but the other way is more interest right now is more more interesting to me how do how does like how do we control what the media feeds us? How do we influence the the political decisions? How do we influence what media is telling us or what media is adopting as the sort of dominant narrative? I'm I'm really starting to understand where you're coming from now. This is really fascinating. Being a a, a critic of technology in society, I'm always going to to to, to you know draw myself into the tech first and i, of course, I love of this course. tension between us this is really cool so i i want to i want to throw it into a specific context yeah. just for the sake of, of giving us uh, a framework to yeah. play around with these ideas a little bit more because i really do think that the context that i'm going to share with you is going to really challenge or at least test this idea 
about the line between like what the tech and the media says versus what you know people choose to believe in mm-hmm. right anti-vaxxing yeah anti-vaxxing you can go to clark county in the southern u.s right now and people will fight vehemently yeah against the idea that vaccinations are good for you yeah that they cause down syndrome that it's making it impossible for kids to uh, be fertile as they age this is really serious problem like people are dying yeah and they're going to become critically ill so where's all this coming from because most of the journalists involved in this are saying media is the culprit that you can go on youtube and you can watch some shitty video Mm -hmm. with some robot voice vaccines are bad for you because they're going to prevent your child from fully developing their frontal cortex blah 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 and it's transcribed you can go and read this sort of stuff there are there's video footage of people talking to journalists saying i trust that more than I do a politician. I yeah. trust that more than I do a doctor. Yeah. Doctors who show up at these rallies to say, here's the evidence, here's the science. Yeah. It shows not only that what you're saying is wrong, it's also showing that if you don't vaccinate your children, they're going to fucking die. Yeah. And they, they don't believe yeah. established ways of thinking. They don't believe institutionalized science. Yeah. So where's the autonomy? Where's Where's the power here? Is this just people choosing to... Um, identify with this kind of movement because it's empowering to them Mm -hmm. is this like a fickle grasp towards uh power and expression because there's an opportunity to do so in a very confusing world or is there actually something there like where do we go well i think this is the same debate is happening in like climate change debates it's it's happening in a variety of in terms of like you can find any information and back up whatever you want to say at any given time I don't think that this is just a matter of individual agency to be like, I'm just going to not agree with that line of thinking. It's like that is a failure of like critical think, true critical thinking. And and this sounds like a kind of elitist um, line of thinking that like, oh, like, well, you just like education is the answer. Like, no, like I understand education is a very privileged thing. Critical thinking as like I understand is a very privileged thing. Um, but like it is a failure of across society in general, the long-term ignorance to developing critical thinking skills, to developing. So like, yes, I can read one article that says vaccines are bad and that could be very persuasive. I might actually like change the way I I think on an issue. And my critical thinking brain would be like, the the critical thinking piece of my brain would be like, okay, go go read 17 more of those. Go read a hundred more of those. Go look at Google Scholar or have any access, any book that you might have access to, whether it be public library or wherever, Facebook, go look at all of the available information on a topic and synthesize it and be able to deduce some sort of conclusion from that. Because like at the end, the climate change debate is is kind of more interesting to me than anti-vax. I don't really know much about anti-vax, but like climate change, it's like just straight cherry picking. It's like you'll pick up on one or two studies that are very convincing, scientifically proven in some of the best journals. But then there are like a thousand articles that say climate change is happening, that it's real. There are there's like an entire community of scientists, like the top Nobel laureate scientists that have all agreed that climate change is real. And then you go and find one or two articles that suggests that it's not or the human element is 
overemphasized or whatever. And that's what you pick up on. To me, it's a failure of critical thinking, societal critical thinking, not individual critical thinking. And yes, media does influence that. Absolutely. Going on Google, getting into your echo chamber, watching all of the anti or the flat earthers and the, and the um, climate change denial deniers, uh, all those people and going on Reddit forums and doing all those. Yes, that does influence you. But it's like, it's not that that is controlling your narrative because for every person, I believe that there would be a moment where the evidence would, would, if they, if you had access to all of the evidence that there would be enough evidence to make you flip, to change your opinion. I think even the most people, the people who are most dug in their heels, eventually, if you get overcome with evidence to the contrary, you will turn just like me. If I believe in climate change and suddenly there's a thousand articles that come out that suggest that there's no such thing as climate change and like some of the top Nobel laureate um, scholars out of their research, they say, you know what? We were wrong. Climate change is a f is false. It's not happening. Then even I would, would flip or there'd be a point where I would flip and be like, okay, maybe we were wrong. Maybe it's just part of the Anthropocene. Maybe we're just going through the the notions of this earth. And eventually, yeah, we, we were meant to, to die off. Fine. Because I can think critically, I think. So to me, it comes, it, the, the question of media and the question of like people picking up media, it's just like, okay, like, yeah, people will pick up media. Certain Certainly it will influence them. But like, you can't deny that that person is choosing which narratives to pick up fair enough that is really really well articulated you've got some really really strong points there and i really do wholeheartedly agree with you that the the access to education is an important determining factor and it is a privileged one mm -hmm. and i totally get that mind you clark county is not an underprivileged community mm -hmm. it's a very very prevalent rich area mm. and the people that are kind uh, showing up to these protests they don't have to work mm -hmm. there's a reason why they're hanging outside city hall all day in their nice shoes and their <laughs> nice sunglasses holding up signs saying stop killing my kids yeah right i will not subscribe to what the government says because yeah, and there's been some like, pe like the most bourgeois people who have been anti-vaxxers or like, like yeah we know some high like they're celebrities that that's are, that's some privileged shit to yeah, me like it, of yeah, course your education but i think privilege it, it's still this is what i mean it's a failure of societal critical thinking doesn't matter necessarily i didn't want to like bring it down to like the fact that like do i think that anyone who is an anti-vaxxer is like like low ses or like like i'm not suggesting that We're whatsoever I, I just that. think it's like uh, even people who are educated lack critical thinking even people who have gone to harvard lack critical <laughs> thinking skills heaven forbid you know like i just think as as a social as a society we lack critical thinking and what I mean by critical thinking, just to be clear here, what I mean by critical thinking is not to be critical. That's not what I'm suggesting. That's not what I think critical thinking is. What I think critical thinking is, is your ability, the, the ability for you to go and get all of the available information that you have. It doesn't necessarily mean all of the information that is out there, but all of the information that you presently have access to and synthesize that to make to support a particular point of view. 
That's all I mean by critical thinking. So for me, as a privileged university professor, I have access to almost every academic journal ever article ever written in a variety of ways. I would have access to that. So if I want to make, if I want to explore a topic or issue, I have to scan that entire horizon and make some sort of judgment. That's what I have available to me. If you have less, you have access to all of the information, like you, you or to all of your information, whether that be Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the public data, you have access to that and you explore and synthesize all of that information. For, for some people, that just means echo chamber. But being a critical thinker, you'd be like, okay, what, what else is potentially out there? Which I don't think that question is being asked by people. I don't think people are asking what other information, what other data, what other observations are out there. No, it's just like, okay, I saw it on Facebook. <laughs> it must be true. And that's, that's what I'm running with. Oh, I saw it on Twitter. Oh, it must be true. That's what I'm running with. A new way of thinking. Immediately available to me on my phone the second I hit the power button, yeah. the screen button. Perfect. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's easy. It's not it, like critical thinking is challenging because it takes time. When I first started teaching, which felt like an eternity ago, um, I remember a lot of the professors around me. Yeah, we were both very old. I just turned 34. <laughs> Happy birthday. Thanks, man. Happy New Year. Happy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. New Year. New year, new me. <laughs> Here we go. Um, I had uh, colleagues, new colleagues, telling me that uh, Twitter was one of the the biggest catalysts of anti-intellectual, anti-critical thinking. And you force people to express themselves into 250 characters at a time. Yeah. Or maybe it was 150 characters. It was 140, and now it's 280. You use Twitter a lot. Yeah, I'm a Twitter guy. Yeah, I'm still... At Derek Krim. <laughs> I don't even know what my hand. I think that's a bullshit argument too, though. Why? I think it's a bullshit argument too. Why? More information is never bad. What? So if you didn't have Twitter as a platform, you would not be able to share information. Yeah, but look what's being shared. Look at that's, what's trending. It's yeah, garbage. Of course, of course. Well, we. Well, it's not all garbage. No, not at all. There are communities things. on on Insta on Twitter, um, particularly that like you can easily find information. Let's see what the, what's trending right now. Okay, sure. But okay, so what's the point of that? So, so, so you'd rather no Twitter, nothing, and people can't share. Like, I think social networking gets a bad rap. I think it's actually not so bad. Go on. It provides ways in which people can view information, period. They can share information. And I don't think information sharing in and of itself is a bad thing. So now we're kind of going back to the algorithm problem right? yeah. and the filter bubble and the echo chamber yeah. problem, right? What What's actually being said? What's actually being shared? So a lot of people who communicate and interact with other people around the world on these platforms all the time. Yeah. We don't know exactly how those algorithms function. Yeah. There's very empirical, very little empirical evidence of this stuff. We know this. Yeah. This is an old theme on the show. It's a huge blind spot for people like you and I. Yeah. Even computer engineers, this is hard to know. Yeah. And until we really unpack those things, we can't say with certainty that, you know, Twitter is just connecting the world. That's bullshit. Facebook, that's Zuckerberg's motto. No, I don't think it's just. I never think anything is just I unfairly deduced. Gotcha. No, no, it's okay. What what I what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get at is that Facebook or Twitter particularly offers a way to share more information. So if we didn't have Twitter, 
would we be better off? I don't think that that that's a reasonable argument that like, okay, Twitter is only sharing trash. So therefore it shouldn't exist. Like, what is that? This, so we're just going to close down all social networking and no such thing. Like, like somebody's going to make that decision and shut Twitter down. Then what's that narrative? It's there. It's a product of society. It's happening, period. So we need to explore ways in which we can negotiate and um, decide democratically what information is right. shared and not shared. That's a question of content moderation. It's a question of content moderation. It's also a question of value judgment. Of course. How comfortable are we as scholars at the end of the day on normatively evaluating the mechanisms, the drivers, the catalyzers, the coalescing things that make information flow happen in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Like how do we evaluate the varying scales and degrees of politicalness, mm -hmm. if that's possible? Yeah. And should we be doing that? I think that, yeah, I think. Because that, this sounds like an empirical issue to me yeah. at the end of the day. I think it sounds like it's an issue of democracy and what we think democracy is and what it should be. Because at the end of the day, all of these questions should come back to to democratic decisions being made by users, by people, by countries, by citizens, whatever. Should be there should be questions of collectively binding decisions. That's the problem we have because we can't collectively make collectively binding decisions mm -hmm. because these are private entities. Absolutely. So that's where it becomes a very difficult question because Facebook is owned by somebody and they have to prove to their shareholders well, they're owned by shareholders, but like certain people are making certain decisions. They have to prove to their shareholders they have to make money, all this stuff. But they, they're so big. It's such a big social network that there are so many users that should ideally have a say in how things are moderated or not moderated. I think a good, we do this in, in the public realm. We do this in countries. For instance, like Canada has like hate crime legislation. We don't, as a society, we don't really care to question that. We don't really care when somebody says something that's like violent to a particular group based on their race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender, whatever, that that's hate crime. So why can't those same things happen on the online space? Well, I think they do, but they're, they're being pushed out by the noise. They're being pushed out by the swaths of trending things that are really, really, really mundane and irrelevant. Like, mm -hmm. what did this celebrity do? Yeah. which is always 50 times more interesting and 50 times more likely to show at the top of my Google when you swipe to the left on an Android thing yeah. and you know, all those like news items that pop up. Yeah. That stuff's always... like I'm still trying to tra train those algorithms to give me something a little bit more, more diverse and, and challenging and interesting, but I still get like, look what Trump said. Yeah, of course. I don't yeah. give a flying fuck what he says when he wakes up in the morning. I yeah. don't care. But millions and millions of millions of people are retweeting this stuff. Yeah. When they're not retweeting uh, the fact that a mosque down the road got vandalized. Yeah. In the middle of a, a suburb in London, Ontario, Canada. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that gets drowned out by volume. It's a, it's a, this is a material issue. Yeah. And that volume is a problem. When the majority of this is the the content that's flowing through the tubes of the internet yeah. then we are really running into it, an issue here right and what's the issue noise so distracting bullshit meaningless apolitical crap yeah it garbage. sounds like very like chomsky-esque like manufacturing consent like it sounds like 
again, it just sounds like so the line of thinking that I'm picking up on here, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that media is controlling the way in which people interact and behave and think through inundating people with noise. I think it's disproportionately amplifying things that are fickle. Yeah. Things that are petty. Yeah. And things that are that tend to be more amoral and apolitical than a lot of things that ought to be talked about. Yeah. Like climate change, like education, like yeah. healthcare. Well, I I would agree sir. I come 100% with that. 100%. The difficult to if there's no if there's not a story out of like polarization which there is on like that's why i think we're hearing more about climate change now than in the past because like now it's like a bipartisan issue now it's a polarizing issue so people pick up on that like media picks up on the polarization in a particular society when it ties into the narrative of somebody who's really popular online like greta Mm -hmm. like trump the the bipolar fighting between the two of them yeah. over, over is the one narrative, of, but like, of climate change. I don't change. think that's driving the narrative of climate change in, say, this country and Canada. Maybe this isn't. No, I think, it's, I think it's our past federal election that just happened in November. The fact that half of the country didn't vote for Trudeau and half the country voted for Scheer and wanted <laughs> for a very particular reason, climate change being one of like the, the predominant reasons. I follow more Canadian news yeah. on my device than I do any other country yeah. combined. Yeah. And I still get way more US stuff. Oh yeah. I think than I do the US like the the news cycle in the US runs dominates the narrative across the world. I was in Germany for a month yeah. this year. Yeah. And I lived in Germany for 4 months last year. Yeah. It is absolutely unbelievable, man, how much Trump is regularly oh, yeah, on true. television. Yeah. Is it would it be fair to say that in comparison to the Obama presidency, mm-hmm. that there is a sincere lack of political diversity in terms of issue types in the U.S. right now. Since, yeah, I think so. Since Trump got into office, yeah, I really do think that the political agenda in terms of addressing really, really important issues has slowed down almost to a crawl. Yeah. Now, yeah. sure, you might not agree with what everything that Obama did, yeah. but when people talk about his legacy and they critique the decisions that his office made, their they were productive. There. Yeah, their decisions there for sure. What are they dealing with in the White House on a day to day basis? Yeah, yeah, I think Trump so. being on Twitter. Yeah, I, I, yeah, like there was. My wife told me the other day that um, I don't. She said some crazy figure. Somebody posted on Twitter or something that like Trump had tweeted like in a span of four hours, like three hundred times, <laughs> some stupid number that I'm like like a tweet every like 15 seconds and i'm just like what in the world like i don't know what that number is so some listener is probably gonna email us and be like you were way off but like yeah when she said it i was like that's wild like it's just crazy how much yeah you can call it noise but like i always come back to the point when i think about this when i think about like the the distinction or the simple question of like do we feed media or does media feed us is like, I don't think media across the board is like telling people how to think, controlling the way people think. Like other people, and other people might disagree with this and say, no, like media, Facebook's controlling the world. I don't think so. I think Facebook is giving voice to uh, an underlying sense of racism and ethnocentrism and misogyny that has existed 
and hasn't gone away, although we thought it has. It's just been hidden. It's been hidden for a long, long time. And the, the combination of the Trump presidency and the manipulation of social media has brought yeah. a lot of that out into the forefront of and empowered it. And yeah, ex- exactly, empowered it. So these people aren't being controlled by the media. These, these echo chambers were always there. They just didn't have as much, as big of a platform. I think the only way to resolve this is through like a genealogy. Oh, we got to go okay. right back into Adorno and Horkheimer. Look at Disney in the 1950s and yeah. see how the categories are constructed. Yeah, I well, I think that would yeah, and I think there are like scholars who do this like already and like, but the the problem is it's it's such a big question. It is huge. Like yeah. so, what like what Frankfurt School were doing? Like they were doing big like big G theory. Like yeah. they they were talking grand theory here, or big T theory, I should say, like grand theory. I like they big were G. they were like Marxist in that respect right yeah. like yeah. they were pr- trying to produce a theory of society that shit is bullshit anyone who suggests that they can produce a theory of society is full of shit there are eight billion people on this planet there is no single theory that can encompass everything for sure it's bullshit but what we can do is pick up pieces right i think we can trace things out in pure and we we keep ourselves in check by remembering and keeping in mind that these theories were written a long time ago yeah. Right? That's a reflection of intellectual progress in a certain way within a certain system of constraints and opportunities, right? Yeah. Nobody is walking around, they shouldn't be, saying that my theory perfectly explains the world. Because as soon as your theory says that, it's failed to be a theory. Yeah. That's not the point. I guess at the, the end of the day, what still concerns me, though, is seeing that Trump has 68 million followers on Twitter and Greta has 3.8. How much content by who is getting out yeah, okay, what but that's, a, that's an that apples have? to oranges. That's a power problem. That That's an apples to oranges comparison. Not, in, not in the climate debate. It's a I, huge I agree, I agree, I agree that the debate is is big. But like you can't compare like a 70-year-old man who's been on Twitter for 20 years, how, since Twitter was created, who's had that celebrity for that long and is now president of the biggest country, mm-hmm. the most powerful country, whatever the rhetoric is of the United States with someone who is what 17 now or 16 still has been on Twitter for maybe a couple years and doesn't, hasn't had that celebrity. You can't yeah. say like, yeah. Oh, because that person has more followers. Like, you know, who has more followers than Trump, Cristiano Ronaldo, Katy Perry, uh, Lady Gaga, Kardashian, something, something <laughs> Kardashian. All of these people <laughs> have more influence than I would argue than Trump even like, Kylie Kylie Jenner has more influence, I think, than Donald Trump. Maybe was, not political, maybe not in the political realm, but like culturally, I would say it's is way more powerful. Who's Kylie Jenner? She's like a billionaire. Kidding, She's a I'm oh kidding. okay. I was uh, <laughs> like my my wife calling calling into the show right now, being like, get, kick Tommy Tell off. Tell Jamie to shut up. He's an idiot. Um, he, J- do I have to explain Jamie? Uh, no, it's probably not. Relevant. I spell my name and it looks like a J A instead of a T O in Tommy. Yeah, he can't. He can't, can't write. Up on that. Can't write. He can't. Also, can't like do anything. Can't really. critique. Yeah. Can't think. <laughs> can't podcast. <laughs> no, but I, I just think <coughs> like the hate for celebrity. I get it from the the perspective of like okay, like you've got to put that on to a continuum, right? Like. I'm always going to root for like the person and I'm always going to focus my work on the the groups and the people who are marginalized the most. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
I don't stop at like a dollar figure. I don't stop at yeah. like a celebrity figure. Yeah. Like I think in sport, we exploit particular groups of people and their bodies, which we talked about last week, right? Like in football, for instance, we exploit, like we, a general, we, people are exploiting the bodies of mostly young African-American men, period. Like to, to the point where they're like facing serious long-term issues. So I don't stop at like, oh, you played in the NFL for 10 years. You made 50 million. I don't feel sorry for you because your head is destroyed. No, I'm like, I feel just as bad as I would somebody else because you've been exploited in a variety of ways. That's a really fair, nuanced, critical appraisal. I really appreciate yeah. that. And so, so we're clear for the record as we finish up here. I'm not, I have no hate on free celebrities. <laughs> I don't. You really did no, make no. me think differently about these things. I think what's to, to be fully transparent, I think, um, my initial hesitation about you know thinking of the privacy from the perspective of a friggin' celebrity yeah. in our previous episode challenged me because I'm a product you know existing within the constraints of how I was trained at the PhD level, yeah. and I this was an, uh, a critical thinking area where I have not applied mm-hmm. critical thinking. Yeah, right. This this is a re- that was a really great learning lesson for mm. me. Um, just so as long, just so long as we know that it's never about hate. It's just. When, when you're thinking about privacy today, yeah. you're thinking about grassroots like I do in my work right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking about the differences between certain kinds of people. Yeah. I'm thinking about just the general fucking problem of not being able to see anything that's going on yeah. inside of an operating system when all of that is highly lucrative capital yeah. to people like Bezos and fucking Zuckerberg. Yeah. That, that's a problem. Yeah. So privacy for me, my frontal cortex first yeah. goes to like lowest common uh, denominator for sure which reifies a lot of the way i was trained at york in a yeah. neo-marxist institution right yeah. when i was uh, doing my when i started my phd in the early 2010s the a lot of the literature that we were consuming was italian autonomous marxism <laughs> you know new new wave whatever neo-marxism if you want to call it that and when you're thinking about um intellectual labor training people who work in front of a computer all day to go home and continue working you know a lot of that stuff is to the benefit of celebrities a lot of that stuff is to the benefit of of big industry and that's Mm -hmm. that's kind of like where my my thinking stopped with that but um as a point of challenging myself there is something i wanted to share too um and it was a huge learning lesson for me in 2012 i became friends with a, a a senior phd candidate in computer science at the time his name's fawad hamidi mm-hmm. hey fawad i hope you're listening he is a postdoc in the u.s right now and this guy has done absolutely remarkable wonderful research his phd project was on uh, uh, developing like this this kind of like hacktivist computer using mm-hmm. recyclable materials that would grow a mushroom colony by speaking into a microphone that would help children in i think it was nepal correct um issues with pronunciation there is like a specific issue in the region with certain kids they had difficulty learning how to enunciate in their language so he flew out there multiple times i'm sorry for what i know it's not nepal this is really going to bug me oh i promise i'll post a correction later but he basically worked in a small community uh very 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 often to try and, and and develop this technology and he was very successful with it up to a certain point when Google showed up and kicked him out of town. 
they showed up with laptops. Yeah. This was at the beginning of like the Google Africa blog movement where they yeah. were pushing new media and yeah. Google Plus into yeah. Africa and, and remote parts of the world and connecting them and offering yeah. internet and free tech just to basically create new Gmail accounts, right? Um, this was deeply upsetting for him and for me, of course. And yet, Fawad still had this incredible resolve to talk about another project he was doing that, talks, that dovetails exactly what you're talking about. It's called My Digital Tapestries. What Fawad had done was basically create on Facebook an ongoing poem. Uh, it's, a, it's an art expression. It's, it's a piece of poetry that anybody can contribute to in any language. And Fawad's background is Iranian. In Iran, you're not allowed to create and post poetry. It's illegal. But what it allowed certain people to do in Iran is to post through VPN in Kurdish, which couldn't have been detected by an algorithm at the time, poetry. As far as I could tell, in 2012, Fouad hacked Facebook in order to allow people a voice to express themselves in a highly, highly despotic, fucked up regime yeah. so that they could express themselves about politics and social issues in a way that they couldn't before. And they were doing that on social media. That really changed the way I thought about things. It's unfortunate that privacy is the big wall that I run into with celebrities. And I'm yeah. glad I'm changing my tune on that a little bit. I think at the end of the day, you're, you're right, man. There's a lot to be said. There's a lot of complexity. and that. I, but I do think that line between, you know, individual... Um, autonomy and agency and the influence of media is always going to be really blurry i, I don't yeah know like i just don't think it's cut and dry and like i think we need to have real discussions about not how fate the cambridge analytica narrative that post cambridge yeah. Analytica was like okay facebook determined the election just like no like and and you can take that say like oh the alt-right is just like 4chan and reddit and youtube comments have just like created the alt-right it's like no people are freaking racist man like people <laughs> people think like that people think like that so if anything i think it's it's a mutual a mutually reinforcing thing like these new media the this this sort of new social media rise is like created platforms in which these debates can happen more interconnectedly just like a debate that i can have with someone who agrees with me halfway around the world which is a good thing right like we want to have debates, but like we can't deny that these communities have existed for a long time and whether or not we thought they maybe were going away, like they were all oh, there. There's people are becoming less racist. Like, yeah, maybe at the societal level, but like there's still there's always been that segment of the population that is racist, bigot, sexist, misogynist, and that's coming out. The socio-technical that comes together. Yeah. Mutual coalescing for mutual interest and destruction. Uh, this is what ha people Hashtag hate about... assemblage theory. The, this is what people hate about sociology, though. What? The, you can't get any answers. People it's want, complicated. People want Period. answers. It's And it's so annoying to people. People will be like, oh, sociology doesn't exist. It's too, like, flaky. Nobody has any... Like, there's no there's no findings like no there are there are findings there are ways to like persuade people to ad adopt a particular like um line of thinking there's great work that it, but no no one will ever have the definitive answer nobody ever will there's no law of society now that's something you and i can definitely agree on <laughs> so i got okay let's end up on a, a brief discussion so it's 2020 happy new year happy to new everyone year. um hopefully you had a great like holiday season whatever sort of thing that you you did um, but it's a new year. 
and I kind of just wanted to, to briefly chat about what are our plans. And I know I'm putting you kind of on the spot. What are our plans for this new year? What are we going to do? In the podcast? Yeah. Po- well, just podcast work, whatever. First thing we're going to do is we're going to scale back a little bit. Yeah. So we're going to Monthly episodes. Monthly only. We move from weekly to bi-weekly. Weekly to monthly. <laughs> to monthly. <laughs> we won't go any less frequent than that. That's absolutely the case. Uh, we are also going to rebrand a little bit. Pursuing confusion and clarity is still the forefront. I think we should be doing that in the pursuit of one question yeah per episode yeah the the bit of confusion that we should be going after should be centralized so that it's not really a plan i'm just sort of throwing it out there because yeah. i haven't had the opportunity to say that to you yet. <laughs> but i do think the episodes will be more successful if we we pursue something specific yeah yeah and what what, what are your plans personal professional what do you want to do this year find a job <laughs> yes you're on the market i'm on the market all those universities Tommy, Dr. Dr. Tommy Cook. Uh, www.tommycookwithane.com. Don't spell Hire with an E. It's C-O-O-K-E.com. <laughs> Hire him. He's Hire wonderful. Me. Thank you. Get into shape. Eat better. <laughs> Same thing that everybody else is saying right now. <laughs> yeah, I should ask what your New Year's resolutions are. To own my shit. <laughs> Be more accountable. Be more accountable. To my friends, my yeah. family, yeah. my colleagues. That's a good one. Because I've realized that one of the issues that I've had in my work, even as a postdoc when I have a lot of time to do stuff, um, is the same problem I'm having personally. I, I ghost people. I don't mm, I, I don't I, always I do that all the time. I don't follow up all the time. Yeah. And um, I've I've been on the receiving end of that with a lot of people in my life throughout the last couple of years and I'm getting really tired of it. Yeah. So um, it's just, you know, just wishful thinking. Hmm. trying to be a better friend and, and and colleague and family member when it's really needed so yeah that's that's a little bit of a, a darker not so happy thing because in the context of resolutions it's usually a little bit more beneficial yeah i was i was expecting you know lose weight eat right work six hours a day <laughs> spend time with your new puppy yeah no uh, those things are on there <laughs> you um think well one get into shape all oh, the holidays destroyed you're already in shape uh, <laughs> you no. don't need to worry the holidays destroyed any sense of a diet that i thought i was on so i need to get into shape um i need to finish a couple projects that i've been wanting to finish for a very very long time um and i think in terms of i i would agree with your accountability thing like just being accountable to the people around you for when you say you're going to be somewhere be somewhere when you say you're going to do something do something all the, like i think that's important um, and yeah, like I think a lot of us suffer with that. Some people call it cancel culture. I just heard about this, like cancel culture. Yeah. Like a few months ago, like, like we've millennials, post millennials, like gener generation Z, whatever the hell the next one's called. Um, that like we've been brought up in a culture where like canceling things is like the norm. Uh. Whereas like in the past, like people, people were more inclined to like follow through when they made obligations. Now it's like. People are, are kind of disciplined into being like, it's okay to cancel, which is a good thing. I think it's a good thing. When people like feel, don't feel up to, like I'm a social introvert for the most part. Like I get, I lose energy when I go out in, in public and stuff. I don't, I don't, I like to be home with my partner and my dogs. That's my, my space. So like when, when I make uh, an obligation three weeks before something, I'm in one mindset. And then when yeah. the day comes, I often like feel a lot of anxiety and don't really want to go so like 
I'm okay with that. But I think there's a line that I need to I need to figure out better it's where tough. yeah, where I, exactly I can do that and where about. I where I need to like just follow through with with what I've uh what I've sort of promised to people and I think that's that's a fine line to to find. But I I also really care about like self-care as well. So yeah. like practicing more self-care is like super important to me um in 2020. Just understanding that I need to take time off, like shut my brain off and go do whatever I want to do for a week and not feel as if I'm like guilty. Yeah. Oh, I'm not working. Oh, I'm not reading. Oh, yeah. I'm not yeah, doing I'm this. You. Yeah. That, that's not a super nice way to end the show. Well, Let's try I, to be better people. <laughs> yeah. Well I, I, well, I think that's a great way to end the show. Isn't that the whole purpose of a New Year's resolution? It's never like, I want to be a shittier person. I want to be a real jerk this year. <laughs> like I want to be really mean to my friends and my family and I want to gain weight. It's never that. By the way, is it 2020 or 2020? Roaring 20s are back. Roaring tw- No, but would you say so you see you read to 2020. Do you say 2020 or 2020? Whatever one is more appropriate for when I show up wearing a tuxedo and a top hat. <laughs> And my, Answer my, 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 the my question. sparkly, I'm going to be doing the Charleston into your office every time. Which would you rather? The 20s, 2020. 2020, okay. Because if you were going to say 2020, I was going to shut this podcast and quit. Punch under it in my face. 2020. Um, I think it's a good place to end. Roll the outro. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch with Derek and Tommy on Twitter at WTNCast. And until next time, keep listening to the noise.